All right. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. I want to I want to begin by asking a question that I think intellectually we would say yes to, but then if we actually think about it, maybe we wouldn't. And that's this: that if someone led you or laid out a path for you that leads to life, would you take it? So if someone says, if you go down this road, I can't can't guarantee you that things will always go well for you. I can't guarantee that you'll get whatever you want. But at the end, at the end of the destination, it will be more than worth it. Now, I think all of us would say, yes, we would want that. But the question is, like, do we do that in smaller things in our life? Like, I'll give you some examples. Sometimes, like, if you watch, a sh- like, a movie, sometimes when I watch a movie about someone who, like, did something awesome, like Rocky, and he's training, and he's running up the steps, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then it's like, no, I'm not. That's a lot of work, right? I, I, you, I, I would not be him. I mean, I know I've got the muscles like him, but I'm not quite as athletic, right? And so it's like, yeah, like, if, I, if, if we do the work that it takes to get there, we know maybe it comes, when it comes to being healthy or, like, being a leader in your career path or developing a skill, that if we put in the work, we can get there, but we know that the, the work is not always easy, not always fun, and so we may not want to do it. And so the question for us this morning that we're going to answer is that if someone said, hey, if you follow this path, if you follow this way, the end result will be life for you. Would you take it? That's what we have to wrestle with this morning. And so we'll be in John chapter 14. If you have a Bible or there's a black one somewhere around you, you can pull out or follow along on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. That is our gift to you. We're in a series that we're almost wrapping up called I Am Jesus in His Own Words. And we're letting Jesus tell us about himself. So not what we think about Jesus, not what other people say about Jesus. We're letting Jesus tell us who he is literally in its own words. And so I want to give you some uh, context before we read this next I am statement of Jesus. Now, this is going to be in chapter, uh, John chapter 14. And so here's what's happening. Uh, this is the last supper. This is the last meal that Jesus is going to share with his disciples before he is betrayed, crucified, and killed. And uh, the disciples, you know, they're kind of confused still about what's going on. They're kind of, they don't understand, like they've been following Jesus. They see him perform these miracles. They see this man full of love and grace. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to die? This doesn't make sense. And to set the stage about what we're about to read is Jesus has already washed his disciples' feet, which in that time was something you did not do unless you were a slave or the lowest of servants. Your leader did not wash people's feet. So he does that. And so they're kind of confused. And then he talks about how um, Judah, or someone's going to betray them, betray him, which ends up being Judas. And so Judas has already left the room at this point, which again, the disciples are like, we've been with him for three years. I can't believe Judas actually betray, is going to betray Jesus. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe Judas, Judas was a little bit of a loner. Maybe he was kind of different from all the disciples. So maybe they weren't shocked. Maybe they were just surprised, but they definitely would have been shocked by what happens next. And so after Judas leaves the room, after he literally says, one of you is going to betray me, which makes no sense why anyone would do that. Then he talks to Peter. It says, Peter, who was the leader of the disciples, the foundational leader of the early church, he says to Peter, you are going to to deny me tonight as well. And so the disciples are like, hold up. Judas betrayed you. Peter, our leader, is going to deny you. And so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of angst. There's a lot of worry about what's going on. What do you mean you're going to die? All these things are happening. And then Jesus says this. This is a more common passage if you're a follower of Christ. Maybe you're familiar with it. But maybe you've been confused about what actually Jesus means when he says this I am statement. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Starting in chapter 14, verse 1. Here's how Jesus responds to this situation. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Which, by the way, is very, 
very fascinating to me, for one. So uh, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be denied. He's done all these things are about to happen to him. And instead of saying what you and I may have said of, I can't believe you guys are going to do this. I've given my life for you. And this is how you respond. Instead, he responds with grace and compassion and love, even though his disciples do not deserve it for what they're about to do. And yet that's still how he always responds to us, which to me is just fascinating. But then he says this, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, I don't know, maybe you've said this, maybe I've said this before, when you're with someone who's in a difficult situation and you don't know what to say. And so you just say, things are going to be okay. Now, you have no idea if things are going to be okay. You just say that because it sounds nice, but it's different if it's coming from Jesus. So if Jesus is God in the flesh, if he knows everything, when he says things are going to be okay, even if you do not understand, if you trust me, then he must mean it. There must be a justifiable reason that he would say this, even though the disciples have no idea why everything is about to go down the way that it is. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I want us to be clear about what's happening here when he says believe in God, because if we don't understand what he's saying, we're going to miss out on what he's telling us to do. Now, when he says believe in God, he's not saying just believe that God exists. So not saying believe that God exists, believe that I am God, and that's all that matters. Now, even in James, even in the book of James, it says that the demons believe in God and shudder. And so he's not saying that it's enough just to believe God exists. We need to be clear on that. He's also not using the word believe in the way that it's kind of come to be defined in our contemporary context. See, when we say believe nowadays, what we really kind of mean is believe against all odds, even if something isn't true. So let's say your team is playing, no matter what sport it is, and there's 30 seconds left on the clock and they're down by 20 points, and someone says, well, just believe. Well, they're not going to win. Like, you can believe, but they're not, still not going to win. Or, you know, college basketball is starting, and so, you know, I'm a big Duke fan, so the jokes are coming up, especially because they're preseason number one. And so if you are a Carolina fan or you are a state fan, and you say, well, I believe Carolina or State is the best team in the country, you can believe that, but it's not true, right? It's just, it's not, it's not true. And so Jesus is not saying believe what is not true. Instead, here, here's, a, here's what Jesus is essentially saying, and here's what Scripture means when it uses the word believe. What it's really saying is trust. So what he's saying is trust in me, not believe something against all odds, and not believe something that isn't true. He's saying, actually, this is true, and so you need to trust me. That is what he means when he says believe in me, trust in me, follow me, because it will go well for you. This isn't against all odds sort of thing. This is the truth, and so you need to trust me. Then he says this, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself so that where where I am, you may be also. So what he's essentially saying is what I'm about to do, I'm about to do this for a reason, to prepare a place for you in God's house or in God's kingdom. And what he's saying is that when I will come again, what he's saying is that when he returns a second time, so when Jesus returns to the earth to judge the earth and establish God's kingdom in the new heavens and new earth, all that trust in him, that believe in him, will have a place in that house. Now what he's not saying here. Some people kind of get off track. He's not talking about the lavishness of the rooms. He's not talking about how big they are. No, what he's trying to tell them is that anyone who does what I just said, anyone who believes in me, anyone who trusts in me, will have a room in this house. We'll have a place in this kingdom. And as we're going to find out, it's not because of you. It's because of me and what I'm going to do. So trust in me because what I'm about to do, even though it makes no sense to you, must happen in order for you to have a place in God's kingdom. So he tells them this, and then he says this in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. So he says, I'm going going away to establish a place for you, and you know how to get there. 
Now, the disciples are confused. They don't understand what's going on. And so why would Jesus tell them they know the way if they don't actually know the way? What he's saying, as we're about to find out, he's saying they do know the way because they know him. So that's why they know the way. They think, they're kind of thinking that there's something we got to do or there's some path they have to take. And he's like, no, no, no. If you follow me, if you trust in me, that will be the way for you. And so here's the next part. So this is how in verse 5, Thomas replies. So he's one of the disciples of Jesus. It says this, Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? So he's saying, well, wait, you're saying we know the way, but we don't know the way. And what he doesn't understand yet is that, yes, you do know the way because you know me. It reminds me, and I don't know if this is the best analogy to explain this, but this is what made it think of. It reminds me of like, when you drive, and there's really no way to put this, so I'm in the younger generation, and so ever since I've had a driver's license, MapQuest was a thing when I started, and then a few years after that, GPS and phones. And so I've never really had to go somewhere. Like, if I didn't know how to go somewhere, I could always find out before I left, right? And if you're in the older generation, that wasn't always the case. So you'd follow maps, or you'd ask people for directions, and you'd have to remember because there are other ways you, otherwise you would get lost. And so there are times when I'm going somewhere, and someone will typically a little bit older than me, will start to tell me directions about how to get there. And what they don't understand is if you tell me more than two directions, I ain't listening. If it's not turn right and it's right there, then I had, it's going, what, I will look at it, put it in my phone. I, there's no way I'm going to be able to find out what you're saying because it is too confusing. Or like two years ago, this literally happened to me. I was, <laughs> I was driving somewhere. It was about a two-hour drive. And so someone told, starts telling me like how to get there. And I'm like, this is two hours. Like, I am not, you really think I'm going to remember two hours worth of directions from you. And not only that, they then uh, printed out MapQuest directions. And I'm like, I, it's on my phone. Like, I'm not going to, right? And here's the thing, right? They're right. Like, if I follow the, that, those directions, that is the way to get there. But it's confusing to me, and I don't understand. And so I kind of like, I'll just stick to the phone, right? And so what's happening here is that the disciples actually do know the way. They're just kind of confused. They haven't internalized it yet. And so here's what this means for us, even just as we begin. Here's what we need to know, that there is a way to God. We need to know that there is a way to God. That is what Jesus is telling his disciples. There is a way to, to, to the Father, to this house that he's talking about, to his kingdom, to a relationship with him. There is a way to God. So we need to know that right off the bat. And then we, and here's, and, and so he, and so we need to know that. And then, and then here's how the next part goes on. So the disciples are still confused, and so here's what Jesus says. They're confused about this, and so Jesus reiterates by saying this in verse 6. He says, Jesus told him, told Thomas, and by, def by default also the rest of the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there is a way to God, and what he's telling us is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to follow this way, you need to follow me. And what this means is, and really and the reality of the situation is, is that it is only because Jesus is the truth and the life that he can be for a way for us to come to God, a way for us to have a room in this house that he's speaking about, and an answer to Thomas's question. He says, I am truth, I am life, it is found in me, and if you follow me, you will experience this life that I am talking about. And it kind of reminds me, have you ever been in a situation in your life where you weren't sure whether you were driving somewhere or you were in a, a, a situation, and you weren't sure how to get through it? Like, you didn't, you didn't know the way to get through it. So that's the disciples, they're confused, they don't know the way, so Jesus is telling them the way. And it reminds me of this, and this is a terrible analogy because it's completely opposite of Jesus, but maybe, maybe it gets my point across. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was taking Spanish too. I didn't really cheat in school growing up except for this class. 
and maybe one or two other times. <clears throat> and uh, here's the thing. I justified it, which we, we love to do, right, by saying, I need to get into college, and if I get a D in this class, it's not going to help, and I'm never going to learn how to speak Spanish anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And so I was like, how can I not get a terrible grade in this class so it doesn't give me a, a bad GPA? I didn't know the way, and then I thought of a way. Here's what I did. So every week, we had a vocabulary quiz, and I sat next to this bookshelf, and so I would print out in really small print all of the vocabulary words and their definitions and put it like right into this bookshelf so nobody could see. And what happened? I got a good grade in the class. Why? Because that grade helped. And so, that, again, this is bad because Jesus is good and what I did was wrong, right? But here's the thing. I got excited because I said, oh, wait, there is actually a way to a good grade. Now, the good thing about Jesus is he does it the right way and the perfect way and the loving way. But that's what he wants us to know. There is a way, which is why he says this in verse 7, that if you know me, you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is why you know the way, because I am God in the flesh, and if you've seen me, you've essentially seen God, which means that there is a way to God, and what is the way? Jesus is the way. That's what he's telling us, that he is the way, that Jesus is the way, which begs the question, why do we need a way? Why do we need a path to God? It must be if God came in the flesh to make a way for us, it must mean that there was no way apart from him right? There was no way apart from him. So we can reject his way. We can deny him. But what he's essentially saying is, I'm coming because without me, there is no other way. And it reminds me of this, again, bad example, but it kind of gets the point across. When I was in, I was already graduated. I was still living in Wilmington a couple of, four, this about five or six years ago. And my younger brother was in town visiting. And we went to cookout, which is right next to UNC Wilmington, where I went to school. And the problem with this cookout is the uh, parking lot was built terribly. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't park. This, the line for cookout was always, like, into the road. And this was, like, 1130 at night. And I was like, we're going to go to cookout, and we're going to get some cookout. And we're going to go home and play some video games, and it's going to be great. So we drive there. And like most people did, uh, I, there was this apartment complex literally right beside it that you weren't supposed to park at. But if you didn't want to wait in line for three hours, that's what you would do. So we park, we get out, and cookout is a basically a drive-through, but there's also a window you can walk up to. We were gone for seven minutes, literally for seven minutes. And when I come back, my car's gone. It had been towed. And I was so mad because there were cars that were parked around us that were there before me and after me. In fact, while I was leaving, someone was like, we got to go, we got to go, the car's gone. I was like, better not be talking about my car. So they told me, I didn't even, this tow truck didn't have lights on, like that can't be legal, but somehow, some way, my car was gone. And I was like, well, this stinks, whatever, I'll call my wife and she'll pick us up. So the loving wife that my wife is, I give her a call, and she doesn't answer. So I call her again, and doesn't answer, mind you, it's like 12 o'clock at night. Call her again, and now in her defense, I make her put her phone on vibrate because I wake up really easily, and she doesn't. So her phone was on vibrate, I called her six times, and I was like, if we want to go home, there's only one way to go home. Now, we don't have to go home, but if we want to go home, we have to walk, which is not that, that bad, but we lived in a really sketchy part of Wilmington, and so we had to, in order for us to get home, we had to walk down the street with no street lights. And now I could have, you could say, well, there are other ways to get home. Yes, if I wanted to walk five hours, I could have gone all the way around. But really, if I wanted to get back to my house, there was only one way for me to go. Now, I don't have to go that way, but if I want to get home, I didn't have a choice. And so we did it, and we were safe, and it was awesome. Not really, but I got my car the next day, and we made it, right? But there was only one way to my house. I could have gone another way, but I would not have gotten home. Or I think of another example. Uh, my sophomore year of college, one of my good friends, my roommate, he was taking this online quiz testing. It took him like 45 minutes or an hour. And as he's doing it, you know, it's, it's questions. It's also essays. So it's a lot of work. He goes to hit submit and everything erases. And he was mad. 
Everything raises. He opens his window, second story, and throws his books out the window. His face is just like, he's so mad. Why? Because everything has been erased. Which, and here's why that matters, because if he doesn't want to get a zero, he has to redo it. Like, he can tell his teacher, hey, this happened, but it doesn't matter because her, his teacher had no, nothing to grade unless he redid it. Now, he didn't have to redo it. He could get mad about it. He could ignore it, but he would have got a zero. And what we need to know about Jesus is that Jesus is a way for us, which means that until we see Jesus for who he is, we won't know the way. Now, again, I know my analogies aren't the best because they're kind of being like worst case scenarios, but Jesus is actually good and his way is actually good as we'll see. But here's what this means for us, that until we see Jesus for who he is, we won't know the way. Until we see our need for him and his grace and his mercy and his love, we will not know the way. We will not be welcomed into his house or welcomed into his kingdom. So we can go another way. We can say, I don't like this. We can say, it's not fair. We can say, I think I'm good enough on my own. That is our choice and his love. He does not force himself upon us. But if we don't see our need for Jesus, if we don't see our, the grace that he's given us, if we don't see the love that he's given us, if we don't think we need it, then we won't follow the way. We won't fall away. So we have to understand who we are, that God is perfect and loving and just, and we are not. And so if we want a way to him, it has to be something that he has done for us. We could not do it on our own. That's why he sent Jesus, which means that we need to follow the way. That is what he's telling us to do this morning and in this text. He's telling us to follow the way. If you want life, if you want forgiveness, if you want to come into God's kingdom, here's the good news. You don't have to do anything. It's not about what you are going to do or try to do. It's about what I have done. And if you follow me, if you follow the way, who is Jesus, you will have life. You will have a room in his house, and you will one day be welcomed into his kingdom, not because of what you have done, because of what he has done. And this is what he's telling to his disciples. So his disciples are confused, they're upset. What they're not fully understanding is that Jesus had to do this in order for them to be a way for them and for us to, to, be, to be welcomed into his kingdom. He had to die for us and defeat death so that we could be entered into his kingdom because of what he has done. So he's telling them this, that you need to follow me, but the disciples are still a little confused. So here's what it says in verse 8 if we continue on. Another disciple speaks up, Philip, and he says this, Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that is enough for, for us. Even though Jesus just said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. So they're like, well, if, if you're the way to God, just show us God the Father. That way we know for sure. And so here's how Jesus responds again, because they're confused. They still aren't understanding what he's saying. He says this, verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? One of the things we've seen throughout the series is that every time Jesus makes an I am statement, he's essentially in some other way or some other angle talking about how he is God. He is claiming to be God, coming to make a way for us. And he's saying, God, or Philip, you've been with me. You've seen me. We've also seen in the series that whenever Jesus performs miracles, he never does them haphazardly. He never does them to kind of woo a crowd. He does them to always point to himself to do something. He always does them heavily, intentionally to show us who he is. So he continues on, verse 10, but Jesus says this, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. In other words, I'm not making them up. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. 
In other words, he's saying, even if you're having a hard time with this, you've been with me for three plus years. You've seen the miracles I've performed. You've seen how I've loved people. You need to recognize that I'm not doing this again to kind of say, oh, look how cool I am. No, I'm doing this to show you guys that I have come to give my life for you. And so you need to trust and follow me. Which means that only, it's only because Jesus is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way. That's what he's trying to say here. I am truth, I am life, and if you want to experience truth and life, you have to follow me. And this is where it gets a little dicey for people, if we're being honest. Because what this means is, if Jesus is the only truth and the only life and the other way, what you're saying is, that means other religions and other paths to God don't get you there. That sounds really exclusive, that sounds really mean, that sounds very anti-loving, why would God do this? Why would God send Jesus to close off all other paths? That doesn't seem like the loving thing to do. But what we need to understand is when we think that way, we are fundamentally misunderstanding why Jesus came. You see, Jesus did not come to cut off all the other ways and to say, I'm the best way and it's my way, the highway. No, he came because if he did not come, there would be no, uh, there would be no other way. And so here's why we need to follow the way, because there is no other way to life. He did not come to close off other paths. He did not come to be mean. He came because if he had not come, there would be no way to the Father at all. In other words, it must mean that our good works are not good enough. It's not about what we are going to do or what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done for us. So we can go other ways. We can trust in ourselves. We can trust in other things. But if we do that, if we deny Jesus and do not follow Jesus, then we will not ultimately end up in life, in his house, in his kingdom. And this reminds me of a story that happened, I think, about April-ish. The staff and I at New City, we went to um, Adam, who's on staff here. His family owns a, a, a mountain house uh, near Boone. And so we went up to the mountains. And uh, it, one of the days, Emily, his wife, wanted to take us hiking somewhere off um, the Blue Ridge Parkway. And so we were like, all right, let's do this. Now, there's not a, it was kind of a more rural town, and so we had to get gas first, which brought us out of the way. So if we had left from the mountain house, Emily could have gotten us to where we would have gone, no problem. But we had to get gas first. So we go to this gas station, and we get gas, and then we put in uh, the approximate address to where we're supposed to go. Like if we got there, it would put us about two or three minutes from where we're supposed to be. So she takes her phone out. She puts in the GPS where we're supposed to go. Um, and we start driving off. It was supposed to be a 20-minute-ish drive total from the gas station to where we're going hiking. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but we start driving, and as we start driving, the time starts increasing. And so we're five minutes in, and it's still 20 minutes, and then we're 10 minutes in, and it still says 20 minutes, and then we're 15 minutes in, and it says like 25 minutes. And mind you, I'm in the middle seat the whole time, so there's five or six of us, and it's an SUV, I'm in the middle seat, and so my head is like up against the, the ceiling, and I'm like sitting like this the whole time, but it's fine, it's taking one for the team. And we're driving, and literally, I killed, kid you not, we were an hour into, we were supposed to be there 40 minutes ago, right, according to GPS. We were an hour into it, and the GPS kept rechanging and kept saying that we were 20 minutes away. And so we were like, no, this is going to... In fact, we got to the entrance of Grandfather Mountain, if you know where that is. We get to the entrance of Grandfather Mountain. We're all kind of annoyed. We're all kind of upset. So Adam pulls out his phone, puts in the same exact GPS coordinates, and it says two completely different locations. Now, at this point, we were like, no. We are, not fa- we're, we are going back home where I'm not driving another 20 minutes and another 20 minutes and another 20 minutes. And what happened in that situation other than all of us getting really annoyed and upset? It was, no one's really, it was no one's fault, really, because we put the GPS in the phone, and that's why you're probably saying, well, you should listen to people when they give you directions. But that's just that's one in a million, okay? So that doesn't normally happen. But what happened there? We thought that if we took this path, if we listened to the phone, we would get to where we want to go, but we didn't. 
because that was not the correct path to where we wanted to go. And so we can deny Jesus, we can say we don't need Jesus, but we just need to know that Jesus is claiming to be God, he is claiming to be the way, and if we deny that, then essentially what we're doing is denying him, and we're denying God. And so here's the bottom line, here's what this is all kind of culminating into, and here's what we need to know this morning, and that's this, that Jesus became the way when there was no way. This is why Jesus came. He came to be the way when there was no way. Again, it wasn't a trying to be mean and trying to cut off all the ways. No, in other words, he came because if he had not come, then there would be no way for us to God. If God is just and perfect and righteous, he has to do something with our sins. He has to do with the times that we fall short and dishonor him. And from the very beginning, he decided as soon as sin and death and destruction entered into the world, that he was going to send Jesus for people for all times, that whoever loves and follows and trusts in him will get to experience God's kingdom, will get to enter into God's house, not because of what we've done, because of what Jesus did for us. And so what he's telling his disciples is, what I'm about to do is I'm about to make a way for you and for me and for us when there would be no other way. In other words, it's not about us trying really hard or us trying to do more good than bad. It's about us following and trusting the way that Jesus provided. Reminds me of what uh, John says in John chapter 1. You can flip there. It'll also be on the screen. John chapter 1, one of Jesus' closest disciples wrote the book of John, and he talks out, talk, he begins this book about talking about how Jesus was the Word, how God created everything through Jesus, and then in verse 10, it says this, talking about Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we're talking about Jesus coming, right? He ends up being crucified. Uh, Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word, that's Jesus again, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came among us. He came into our place. He observed his, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. In other words, what he's saying there is that Jesus came to give us grace, to give us what we did not deserve, and to make a way for us to come to know him. And you may be wondering if Jesus is full of grace and truth, and okay, I, I get it, so he made a way. It's not like he was being mean. It's that if he hadn't come at all, then we would, there would be no hope for us. But then why does Jesus go and say stuff like this in Matthew chapter 7? If he came to make a way for us, and it's not about what we do, why does he say this? And we've talked about this before. But he says this, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. Why would he say that? Because again, he is the only way. He's not trying to make it narrow. He's trying to make a way for us. But if we deny him, we will deny life. We will not be able to experience the life that he has designed. And we will not be able to enter into his kingdom if we deny the way that God made it possible for us to enter into his kingdom. Then it says this in verse 14, Jesus continues, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. So if you're saying that Jesus came to give us grace, he came to make a way when there was no way, why then is it difficult? Here's why it's difficult. It's not difficult in the sense that you better measure up or else you don't find it or else you can't get there. It's difficult because if we're following and trusting in Jesus, then that means that life is not about us. That's not about what we want. It's not about us being prideful or us being selfish or us doing whatever we want to make us happy. No, it's about following and trusting him. 
And what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for us. And so we lay down our life, not to earn something from God, but in response to what he has done for us, out of thankfulness, so we can uh, play a part in as many people as possible seeing and experiencing this grace that Jesus offers. So again, Jesus became the way when there was no way. Again, here's what Jesus is saying. It is me and the grace that I offer you, or you are left to yourself, and the path that you take will not lead to life, and it will not lead to grace. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. We say this a lot around New City, but the gospel is this, that because of Jesus, we have nothing to prove. We have no one to impress. Because Jesus came and made the way, we have nothing to prove because Jesus is perfect and righteous in our place, and we have no one to impress because God looks at us the same way he looks at Jesus for anyone who trusts in him, which is righteous, pure, holy, and blameless. Even as we screw up, even as we fall short, even as we disobey God and turn from him, we need to understand that Jesus came to make a way in the midst of all of that. And so if you're here this morning and maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, maybe you just need to be reminded that the grace Jesus offered for you and for me is not a one-time thing. He offers it day after day after day, and that is why he came. He came to make a way for us to receive grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, if you've got a lot of questions about God, you need to know that God made a way for you to come to him to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it's not because of what you have done. This is what he has done in Romans, another book in the New Testament. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God did not decide to send Jesus when humanity somehow got their act together and said, no, they deserve it now. No, he sent Jesus when we don't deserve it so that anyone who trusts in him, what he has done and follows him will receive grace and mercy. This is why Jesus came. He came to make a way when we didn't deserve it, when there was no way so that anyone who would just be honest and say, we need a savior we need grace, we need forgiveness. It can be found in Jesus. That is why he came. He came for you, he came for me, so that we may be experience life. And the question is, will we follow that path, even though it may be difficult, if we know for sure that the destination will be amazing? Or will we say, you know what, as great as that is, I think I'm good, I think I can do this on my own. The reality of the situation is one day we will stand before Jesus, everyone will stand before Jesus, and he's not going to ask you, how good were you? He's going to say, did you trust and follow me in the free gift of grace that I gave you? Again, Jesus became the way when there was no way, and that is why we can trust and follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for becoming the way for loving us, for making it possible for us to receive your grace and your forgiveness. Because the reality of the situation is it's not you coming to make it hard to know you. No, it's you coming because if you had not come, then there would be no hope for us. If you had not come and made a way for us to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness, there would have been no way for us to receive it. So my prayer this morning is that we would see and we would recognize you for who you are. If we're going through a difficult time, if we're in a rough spot in life, God, I pray that we would be reminded of your grace towards us, that we are not promised. We are not promised to get everything that we wanted in this life. We're not promised that everything is going to go the way we want it to go. But we are, we are promised a room in your house. There's no more pain. There's no more death. There's no more destruction. There's none of that. We are promised that by simply trusting in you. And my prayer is that we would take you up on that promise. That we would put you first. And as we fall short, we would turn back to you, knowing that you offer us grace and forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for making a way when there was no way. Thank you for being grace to us. Thank you for taking on our flesh because you loved us. For no other reason other than you loved us and you wanted to invite us into your kingdom. Thank you for offering us grace and forgiveness through the cross 
for making a way for us when there otherwise would not have been a way. We love you. We are undeserved of this gift. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.